my name is Eric, and I welcome you to our Black Gay Diaspora podcast, where we, as LGBTQ plus citizens, come together to inspire and educate each other on who we are and our respective countries and professions. Through topics and guest interviews, our Black Gay Diaspora podcast celebrates individuals making a difference. Loving who we love is not a choice. Being who we're meant to be can be. We are here. You are welcome. We are community. Hello and welcome to another episode of our Black Gay Diaspora podcast. Our guest today is Pierre Monerville, a French photographer based in the United Kingdom, whose imagery focuses on male fashion and fitness. Thank you for joining us, Pierre. Thank you for having me. Yeah, welcome. How are you? So far, so good. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I promise it'll be nice and casual. (laughs) I'm sure. I trust you. To kind of center where we're at, how are you right now in this moment? I'm feeling grateful. Grateful to be interviewed. Grateful to be where I am right now. So, uh, yeah, feeling grateful. I have been on your portfolio site and you focus on the male physique, if I'm correct. That's right. Your pictures are amazing for more than one reason. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you. Mainly because of the photography and the lighting, but of course, for your subject matter. So do you only focus on male models? Yeah, and um, I don't know why. Well, I guess I know why. But but what I meant by I don't know why is I don't know why I have no interest in photographing women. I think just go with what you like. That's what I'm trying to do. Go where the heart leads you. (laughs) Exactly. It looks like some of your models are giving some really amazing looks to the camera, deep, intense looks based on what I saw. Do you direct them in any type of way? Very little. Maybe that's why. Because uh, in my opinion, photo shoot is really about two people getting together. So it's really about two personalities being comfortable with each other. I like to give very vague instructions, actually, on purpose. Because what I want is to take photos of the model, not my version of the model. I see it as some sort of teamwork. So I really want to show them. And it's a very personal thing really to be photographed. I really want them to feel comfortable enough to be themselves and to allow me to to show them as they are or as they want to be seen rather than me trying to show what I see of them. That's not what I'm interested in. It sounds like you create a really comfortable environment for them. Well, I do my best, yeah. As I said, you know, it's such a personal thing that the last thing I want is for uh, the model to feel exploited or, you know, not comfortable. I was attempting to be an actor in another lifetime, and I know the last time that I took photos, that was the first time I felt comfortable taking pictures. And I know it was because of the photographer, just kind of like you explained, he created an environment that was very comfortable. And for me, someone who kind of freezes when a camera comes near me, it was a new and a great experience. And I actually liked the picture. So yeah. And I think it shows also when the model is relaxed and cooperative. And it's a two-way thing, really. But I think, yeah, it shows when the model is happy to be there and is just uh, enjoying the process. Now, I'm sure our listeners can tell by your accent that you're French. No, I'm not. (laughs) (laughs) So I was born in Paris, but I'm from a tiny French island in the Caribbean called Martinique. Where are you at now? 
So now I live in Brighton, which is south of London on the coast. It's about an hour by train from London. And how long have you been in the UK? I've been in the UK, I think, 17 years now and 16 years in Brighton. So how did you get into photography or how did that start? Was that always a passion of yours? Yeah. So I found some books that my father had. There were books from like, you know, early 80s, I guess, where there were guides to, well, take photos, but mainly to process them, to develop film and to actually print also. And uh, as soon as I found those books, then instantly I had an image in my, my mind. And the funny thing is that the image was a still life of makeup products. <laughs> I don't know why that, well, you know, once again, because when that happened, I was 13, I think. I wasn't into makeup or anything like that. I don't know why that first image materialized in my mind but that's the first thing I, I saw and when I was a child I wanted to be a fashion designer but very quickly I realized I couldn't draw and also my parents were not very keen on paying for the studies so um, I just dropped it yeah when I was 13 I found those books and then I read them dozens of times and the following year we moved back from the Caribbean to Paris and uh, Casually, I walked into a bookstore and I came across Robert Mablethorpe's Black Book. And I had never been so shocked and turned on at the same time. And I thought, oh, I want to be a photographer. So that's that. Now, are you only focused on fashion as far as your photography? No, I'm actually getting back now into fashion. But for most of the time, I've done more fitness and sport photography and portrait as well and also some fine art so i had a series of work where i i was writing texts and i was presenting them with photos and the whole thing was fiction really and it was presented as if the text was the model's diaries mm. and it was an exploration of urban gay lifestyle yeah, I did that for a while, for maybe, I don't know, seven or eight years. I read a write-up on you, specifically with the male physique. My impression is that it's kind of like your way of, and this is me reading into it, this is how I interpreted it, of kind of taking away the shame around admiring the male body, at least from a, a gay male perspective. Yeah, because there is this stigma that I experience anyway, where, sorry, I'm jumping to another story but years ago when i had just moved in brighton there was a gallery in the center that exhibited regular photo exhibitions so i went in there and then i asked for an appointment and then brought my body of work which was called diaries and then the owner really shamed me and said uh, no 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 this is uh, homoerotic this is disgusting that's not art it just reminded me of my art studies, you know, where we were studying how the female form is sort of the version of good art and male art is like an afterthought. And especially art critics, you know, most of them, they can't just appreciate any work of art that shows male model. 
most of the reviews I saw, you know, they always have to imply that, oh, yeah, well, I'm not gay. There was a movie I was going to watch the other day, and I read the reviews before I started watching it. And one of the comments from a straight man, he was upset that there was male frontal nudity. And it wasn't erotic at all. It was just a guy on a beach, a nude beach, and he was with a woman who was also naked. But that just bothered him that there was male frontal nudity in this movie that was not pornography. It seems like it's usually straight men that automatically default to thinking about sex when they see the male body. Why is that? (laughs) Exactly. And why do you feel the need to say that you're not gay? Who's asked you in the first place? Right. It's an interesting thing to ponder. Yesterday on BBC4, there was a guy who has a male lingerie line he's trying to promote. And he said that social media, like Facebook, they have blocked him each time. And he's just promoting something that with the female body we're used to seeing. And, you know, it's funny you say that because I have a gay t-shirt brand and I'm just about to release three t-shirts that are a collaboration with an artist who is based in L.A., And he works with gay erotic magazines from the 60s and 70s. So he does collage. And when he showed me the works that we are going to publish, my first reaction was shock. (laughs) Because, you know, they are quite daring. But what I'm trying to say is there is, of course, this idea that, you know, we are more used to seeing women and when he saw my reaction, he said, well, you walk around and you see T-shirts with Kate Moss topless and nobody bastard. So why should we censor ourselves? Coming from the States, this is just my perception. It seems like cisgendered men, well, I think men in general, because of the culture or, or patriarchy, were uncomfortable with being objectified. You know, I think women, that's just something you just are used to being looked at. Yeah. And not to say that it's right on some level, especially when it's affecting your emotional or your physical well-being. But my perception is that men in general and straight men in particular are uncomfortable with being looked at as an object of desire. Especially by another man. That too. The ones I photograph, they don't mind. In the worst case, they don't mind. In the best case, they love it. Once again, not because you enjoy the attention that it makes you gay. They're two different things. I know for me, it feels nice when I'm aware that a woman is looking at me. I take it as a compliment. And kudos that at least I showered and I have nice clothes on, hopefully. Yeah, there's nothing wrong with attention. I agree. So did you work as a photographer in France? Yeah. You did? In, In the UK, too. More in France than in the UK. Okay. Now, are there differences within the industry between the UK and France? I didn't find, no. Well, other than the cultural differences, but that's everywhere. Now, you said you're born in France, but you grew up in Martinique. Mm -hmm. What was life like in Martinique? I hated it, but it's not Martinique I hated. I hated my childhood because my parents neglected me. I couldn't wait to grow up and be independent. And the problem in Martinique at the time was that it was very small. There was very little public transport. So I had to be driven everywhere. And that made it very difficult because 
my dream was to be independent. It's only this year, actually, that now I'm doing some therapy that I understand that, you know, the reason I didn't like my time in Martinique was not because of the place. That was just because of the way I was brought up. I don't know if that answers your question. <laughs> no, it does. I'm from Arizona, Phoenix. Some similarities. Phoenix now is a big city, but public transportation, that type of thing, and then some of the family dynamics, you know, going back and saying, oh, okay, this is why I couldn't wait to leave. <laughs> so yeah, I do understand that, and, and I relate to it. I will say, in connection to Martinique, I saw pictures of it. I've never been, but it looks beautiful. Yeah, it's very nice. So French is the official language, but I read, too, that Creole is spoken there. So is it spoken just as much as French or is it just interchangeable? The thing is, for example, my grandmother, I think she was the fourth or fifth generation, I think after the abolition of slavery. So her generation, most of them, they had to prove themselves. So, you know, they wasted most of their energy trying to be whiter than the whites. For example, my mother, was forbidden to speak Creole at home. Mm. So I speak Creole, but we didn't speak it that much. Even at school, you know, we were forbidden to speak Creole. Between us, we could, but not in the class. But I think now, at last, the language is being taught at university level, and it is recognized now as a language, not some sort of sub-language. Now it's an official regional language. That's good because it's part of culture. Exactly. Because, you know, when I went to school, I was taught that my ancestors were white people. What do you mean? There was no um, teaching of slavery, none of it at all. No. Oh, wow. It kind of sounds like what I know of the Dominican Republic, their history. From what I understand, it, the focus is on the Spanish but as far as the history, they don't learn that much about the Africans that were brought there. When you mentioned the abolition of slavery, I just assumed that that type of history would be known or taught. The official day of the abolition is a bank holiday, or at least when I lived there, the only official acknowledgement of slavery. I think I told you I'm here in the UK, and I was in Liverpool for a month and a half, and I just went on a tour a couple of weeks ago because I didn't know their connection to the transatlantic slave trade, and that it was the most uh, profitable port as part of the slave trade. It's, it's all this history that, well, it's not taught. And I know even with slavery, at least as far as the media seems to be concerned, it only happened in America. Oh, yeah. And I know that most of the slaves were not brought to the U.S. <laughs> it encourages me to do some research. I've been wanting to uh, do some genealogy, but it's, it's quite difficult because obviously with slavery, people were kidnapped from Africa and then because they were considered animals. So there were very little records kept mm. with names and stuff like that. It's quite difficult. Yeah, it seems to be the common story for many of us, unfortunately. Yeah. And even if you do a DNA test, depending on which company you do it with, you're going to have completely different results because for non-white people, they haven't got that many data to begin with. So they can only give you what they know. Well, that explains why my data changes all the time. Yeah, exactly. 
You mentioned a little bit about Martinique and your childhood. Were you aware as a kid of being gay? I was always gay. I didn't know there was a name for it. I only knew there was a name for it when people started calling me gay at school. I think I was maybe 11 or 12 and I thought, ooh, I think I like boys more than girls. Although at the time, I saw myself marrying a girl, a woman. <laughs> But at the time, you know, I was imagining marrying a girl in my class. That's what I meant. But then I think very quickly, as soon as I moved to uh, the mainland, because then I was 15, I was old enough. Now I think I'm gay. Have you been back to Martinique as an adult? I haven't yet, no. Well, I've tried to go three times and there was always something that happened. Uh, I think deep down I didn't really want to go once again because I felt I was so miserable. But now that I know why I was miserable, I can't wait to go back. It's just that now is not the, the best time to travel. I asked that because I was going to ask, like, was there a gay subculture on Martinique, like a gay network? Oh, there must have been. I believe there are gay people everywhere. You see them or you don't, but we're everywhere. But I just didn't know, obviously. Uh, first of all, I mean, I was very naive, my God. And my parents never spoke about sex. So I had no idea what was going on. No idea. You know, I didn't even know I was gay. Uh, I don't know if, you know, that's clear. I knew there were gay people, but I never saw myself as one. I really today, I, I was so in denial. I didn't know. Like, I was aware on some level of how I felt whenever I was around a boy I liked. But there's this way, or at least for me, that the mind is able to just shut that off and say it doesn't exist. It doesn't exist, especially for you. So don't even go there. Exactly. Just carry on pretending you don't like it. <laughs> Or uh, it wasn't hostile, but looking back, I would get annoyed with them. And I think because they were bringing out something in me that I just wasn't ready to see at the time. You said you went back to France when you were 15. How was that going back? Was there an adjustment? Oh, yeah. Well, I think the main adjustment was I realized what it was to be Black. Mm. Uh, because, I mean, obviously I knew I was Black before, but I'm talking about what it means socially, because all of a sudden I went from being in the majority to being in the minority. And that was quite a shock. Mm, okay. Were there like conversations? My parents were not very talkative. These are stuff that I just process by myself over time. Are there any experiences, say like in school or anything, that kind of brought that home to you? No, I guess I was lucky, you know, if that can apply to the situation. But I didn't witness any racism. I never felt victim of racism at that time. Well, there was one time when I thought, now that's racism. But I was, I think, 18. I had made an appointment to go and visit a studio for me to move in because finally I had turned 18 so I could leave home. So I had booked a viewing and then the guy was really enthusiastic on the phone. So I showed up, I introduced myself and then he said, oh, he's been taken. I had that happen a few times. Mm. I'm not saying it never happened. All I'm saying is I never thought to myself, right, they're being racist. That's what I'm saying. Mm -hmm. So in regards to being gay, how did that 
acceptance come about once you were, you know, in your teen years in France? All right. So I think I came out to myself when I was 17. No, before that, I think I was 16. Yeah. After we moved back to, to Paris, I came out to myself and then to my parents and to everybody, more or less, at 17. Once again, it was a shock because I couldn't see any role model. I couldn't see anyone that looked like me. There was a black guy on TV, but he was non-binary. That's not me. It was challenging because at first I defaulted to some sort of stereotype. I felt that I had to be super count to be gay, to conform to some sort of stereotype. I, I don't know how long that lasted. I grew out of that and I hope that now I'm being myself. Did you immediately start going out, like finding gay organizations? I always liked clubbing, always. Even before I was the age to go out clubbing legally, um, I used to listen to the radio. Every Saturday night, they would play clubbing music, and I would love that. And after 18, then I started uh, going to one of the biggest gay clubs in Paris at the time that was called The Queen. And it was on the Champs-Élysées. At the time, it was free to enter during the week. So you only paid Friday and Saturday nights. That's all. So during the week, I would go for free, stay until maybe five o'clock so that I would catch the first tube home. I remember once when I left the club, I thought to myself, I really love this, but... I'm sure I grow out of it. That's my thing. Now it's difficult to go clubbing, but I still party and I just love listening to house music and stuff like that. That's just what I like. Do you have a favorite artist? I love Marvin Gaye. In terms of clubbing music, they don't play him that much. And of course, I love Madonna too. They used to play her late 90s, early 2000s. In terms of clubbing music, Oh yeah, there's this song that I really love. I first heard it when I was in Ibiza. Uh, it's called Sun Rising Up. There's another one called Dirty Old and it's uh, Turn Me On. I really like it. Okay. I asked for selfish reasons because I discovered house music after I came out. Yeah, me too. I discovered house music when I arrived in the UK. And I think London is the best thing. Well, it's my favorite. Well... It was, because I haven't been clubbing for some time now. I was going to ask, you mentioned staying until five. Is that five in the morning? Mm-hmm. So Paris is a late night city. I wouldn't say that. I stayed until five because that's when the tube started. Ah, I see. Okay. It was just easier to just go from, I don't know, half 11 midnight all the way to five o'clock. I wouldn't describe Paris as a late night city, no. You've got the odd shop that's open all night long or this kind of thing, but it's not shops that open, you know, 24-7 like in London or in the UK in general. Yeah, I heard that five and I was like, oh, it's an all-night city. <laughs> now, you mentioned earlier your t-shirt brand that's unapologetic. Is that correct? Can you share a little bit about that? Yeah, the brand is really based on my experience of growing up next to people who were ashamed of being gay. Actually, first of all, ashamed of being black, because that's what I was exposed to first. Mm. 
And then when I came out, when I spent time with gay people, you know, gay friends and you know their friends and all of that, there was a lot of talk that I heard about straight acting, you know, mask for mask, all the, you know, femme shaming, bottom shaming, all these kind of things. And it reminded me of when I lived in the Caribbean, really dark people were shamed. To me, it's exactly the same thing, really, where you've been oppressed your whole life. Your ancestors have been oppressed. And then, because that's all you know, if you don't think, it's very easy to reproduce that same oppression to your people. So I wanted to put something out there that sort of counteracted that and offered messages of self-acceptance and empowerment, while at the same time, hopefully being lighthearted or even funny. It kind of makes me think of, you know, women are shamed for embracing their sexuality. Yeah. But it takes two to tango. And if a man is going to brag about sleeping with a bunch of different women, how do you do that? <laughs> exactly. It's like you said, the parallels there within the gay community, the gay male community, and that we have to act a certain way. You have to be, uh, I don't like that term, but yeah, straight acting. It's interesting, especially with online dating, that. I don't notice all these straight acting people out in the world, but they all seem to be online. How is that? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But yeah, I think it goes back to, like you said, about shame. We come in all different sizes, flavors, and colors. So why not embrace those? So I think that's great that you're doing that with this, this brand. Well, the tagline is embrace yourself. See, there you go. Great minds think alike. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, now, you mentioned about, I, I don't know if that term is used on Martinique, colorism. Is that what you were talking yeah. about? Okay. Mm -hmm. So is that very prominent? Oh, it was, my God, yes. It's similar everywhere, I guess. In my opinion, anyway, everywhere that has been colonized, there's always some sort of internalized racism. Uh, I know for me, I have to challenge myself to always say that, you know, I can think I'm evolved but I did grow up in this system. Oh, yeah. So specifically Black, gay, and French, similar to other major cities, is there like a Black, gay community or scene in France? You know, I've been away for so long that I couldn't tell you exactly where to find us, but I'm sure they're around. Yeah, next time I go to Paris, I'd like to have a look. When's the last time you were in France? It was Christmas 2019. Uh, so right before the pandemic. Now, speaking of the pandemic, has it affected your work as a photographer? Yes. I really think for the better. Okay, how so? I had been working as a cabin crew for 17 years, and I was ready to go because uh, I just wasn't happy anymore. And uh, so when the pandemic happened, then I thought, right, does the universe gently nudging me. I stopped flying and then now I am just about to launch another business. During uh, you know, the several lockdowns, I had one photo shoot in between lockdowns. I was just doing a lot of you know, soul searching and working on myself in terms of therapy and all of that. I've been hearing that a lot with the pandemic. Of course, we want to get to the other side of it, but you know, sounds like this helped you to rediscover some things about yourself personally and professionally. Exactly, yeah. Now, you moved to the UK 17 years ago. What prompted that move? 
that was when I got a job as a flight attendant. I came for the training. My whole life, I wanted to live abroad. I really felt trapped on that tiny island of Martinique. Because at the time, I think when I was living there, there were only 300,000 people on the whole island. That was mid-80s. Even the news on TV, we had the news from the day before from the mainland. I remember thinking, oh my God, you know, anything interesting happens elsewhere. So I need to be elsewhere. Please, God, send me wherever you want. Send me where something happens. So Paris was good because, you know, that's a capital. And I could be independent. But then I thought, right, now I need to go elsewhere. And I remember when I was seven years old, I had that sort of vision that was so crystal clear. And I remember thinking, actually, he wasn't thinking. I remember knowing, you know what, when I'm an adult, I won't be living here and I won't be living in France either. I don't know where I live, but I will move away. And then I need to learn English. A lot of those dreams and concrete things like you just shared are there always. We just have to acknowledge them and accept them. Exactly. When did you learn English or start learning English? So when I was six, the first disc I ever bought was the soundtrack for Mad Max by Tina Turner, We Don't Need Another Hero. And I remember pestering my, my brother to translate the lyrics. Oh my God, I want to know what you're singing. So I had a, like a little t-shirt that read Quality of Life. So this happened just after we moved from Paris to Martinique. And I remember we were at the beach and my dad said, ah, oh, can you believe that quality of life in French? And when I heard him say that, I thought, oh, that's what it says on my T-shirt. Oh, that's it, that's it. I can speak English now. <laughs> so uh, I would ask several times a day my brother to translate. If it wasn't something I heard on the radio or it was something I was thinking. At school, my first lesson, I was 11, I think. I was so thirsty to learn that I would read the textbook at home. Now, do you just speak English and French or do you speak other languages? Well, I speak a bit of Spanish and I still speak Creole, obviously, and just a few words of German. My ex is Spanish. I oh. spoke a lot more, not with him, but with his family. Now, did you live in London first? Yeah. And what prompted the move to Brighton? I came to Brighton, I think, first time was in 2004. I had never heard of it. And within an hour, I thought, oh, I could live here. I don't know why. Well, actually, no, I do know why. I remember when I was in my early 20s, I read Tales of the City. And I remember thinking, if I don't live in San Francisco, I have to live somewhere as close to it as possible. And I see Brighton as the English San Francisco. So that means it's like bohemia, artsy. Yeah, it's very spiritual. It's very alternative, very laid back. There's the sea, it's very hilly, it's full of weirdos like me. <laughs> what do you mean by weirdos? <laughs> well, hippies, you know, people with funky diets. I don't think I would live in the same place for 16 years if I didn't like it. I'll have to visit. <laughs> you mentioned diet, I'm a vegan, so, um, and then of course being gay. Mm -hmm. Oh, you're vegan too. Oh, wow, that's cool. <laughs> Black Vegans Unite. <laughs> <laughs> I don't meet a lot of Black Vegans. I mean, I see them online on social media, but not in my walking around life. So that's cool. Yeah. 
The good thing is here in Brighton, it's so easy to shop for vegan food. It doesn't cost an arm like in London or in other places. It's everywhere almost. It's great. More checks on the boxes for Brighton. <laughs> uh, you know, you're a photographer, you have the t-shirt brand. What are your other projects? So I'm launching a sustainable and ethical athleisure menswear label. That's the newest project. What's the name of it? Monoville. And is it out now or is it going to be launched soon? So now we're finishing the sampling. So the stage we're at now is called grading. So it means that the patterns we used to make the first sample are scaled up to make medium, large, extra large sizes. That's where we are. And then we can go into production and then we can start selling it's leisure wear or athletic wear? Yeah, so it's athleisure. I want to promote slow fashion and capsule wardrobes. I want people to buy less but better. I'm doing a series of basic t-shirts mm-hmm. that you are likely to keep for several seasons. They won't go out of fashion. They're made in organic cotton in London. They are designed to be multifunctional. You can wear them to work from home or go to the office. But you can also wear them to go out afterward. What is your educational background? So I'm trained as a product designer, not a fashion designer. What does that mean, like in graphic design? No, I'm trained in industrial design to make products. I went into those studies by chance because about 10 years ago, I realized that because of my day job, I wasn't really in the industry, in the photo industry. I felt I was trapped in a vicious cycle because I couldn't meet, for example, art directors and stuff like that because I was busy with a day job. So I thought, okay, you know what? I'm not in a position to just stop working. So let me just study to be my own art director. But I don't want to just buy a nice coffee table book that I will read for two days and then I will leave it. So I looked into universities. I didn't want to study again photography or art history because I had done that in France. I wanted something that would stretch my mind, that would hopefully feed my photography and sort of creativity. And I think I misread the website because, uh, you know, I just saw design. I thought, oh, yeah, they will teach me to do pretty things. Let's go. The other degrees available were engineering, so not for me, or science, even less for me. So I thought, well, that's all I'm going to do. I went into that and it was a revelation because uh, it's nothing to do with doing pretty things. It's very much about problem solving. And that really transformed the way I look at things. I got so much more than I bargained for by going back to university. And also it gave me the confidence to start two businesses. I'm really grateful for that. I really think so far that's the best thing I've ever done. You mentioned last week when we connected briefly that you wanted to ask me questions, I think. Yeah. I just wanted to know how you started this podcast. Yeah, I always say I've seen Black people most places I've gone to throughout the world and places I've seen so far. But I want to take it a little deeper and find the Black LGBTQ plus community. I guess because I don't know where to look, but I definitely wasn't really finding it online. I want to know what else is out there. Like, you know, you being a photographer, you being a fashion designer. This is when I was still in Stockholm in February, and I just 
started writing this idea. And I had already been doing a podcast with a friend for about a year. I just started writing things and saying, I really want to see us. Yeah, we can talk about our fun, but what do we do? How do we contribute to society, the Black culture and also the gay culture? Mm -hmm. Because we do. I want to see that more. I want to see that promoted. I want to see that celebrated. It's been, what, about 50 years that we've had this this revolution connected to our community. But I feel like us as Black people, Black men in particular, we're still not really seen on the level that I think we can be seen. That's very true, actually. Especially, I find, Black gay couples. We're used to seeing mixed-race couples, but very rarely we see two Black men or even, you know, two non-white gay men together. They're not represented. I always say entertainment educates and it creates the perception and the belief that we're not attracted to each other, that we don't have these healthy, thriving relationships between us. Exactly. And in turn, you know, that really affects our own worldview. So yeah, that was a long answer, answer your question. Yeah, that's how it came about. No, I don't know. That's right. When you were sharing some of the points of your life, I was like, oh my God, yes, I relate to that. I connect to that because that's where I'm at now too. So yeah. Very good. So what, what other projects are lined up? I rediscovered writing a few years ago, so I'm focusing on that. I do have a book that I haven't really started yet, <laughs> but it's still there. This podcast, of course, this is new, but it's tying my creative and technical skills because I was a graphic designer. I'm a graphic designer. All right. Yeah. So, you know, creating the logo, coming up with the tagline, even doing these interviews. My first major, I didn't graduate with it, but I was a journalism major. And this is kind of returning that to my life. And something you said about like you knew as a kid that you would not live in your home country. Mm. I think we always know what we really want to do. Yeah. That's my story. <laughs> I'm glad to see that, you know, you also do different things. Hearing your story just reminds me that it's possible. It's definitely worth a try. That's for sure. And stories like yours and other stories I've heard so far, it's like, go for what feels right for you. Like when you talk about the photography and photographing men, it's like the male body is stigmatized and we don't even realize it. Men who photograph women, they get exhibited all over. So why don't we? Exactly. Yeah. So any other questions? <laughs> um, yeah. So what's next? For example, you mentioned the book, no? Yeah. I rediscovered writing through a friend, memoir writing, something I had no interest in because I never wanted to really talk about myself. And when you talked about like therapy and your childhood, for me, even as recent as two, three years ago, I wouldn't really talk about myself publicly because, you know, we keep that in the house. Yeah. We don't talk about that out in public. But with writing and memoir writing in particular, um, I started to share about parts of my life that I didn't expect to share about. And in particular, was a period of time, my first few years in Los Angeles, and I was encouraged to write about it. The story is about that period of time connected to someone who <laughs> uh, was complicated, at least for me, the relationship. Mm. You know, I was also brought up in a lot of shame. Like you, I think, I never thought I would talk about you know, being neglected and all of that. But on the other hand, that's my story. Yeah. First of all, it's no um, coincidence that I've, quote unquote, exiled myself 
far away from my roots, far away from my family. I'm the only one living in the UK. Nobody else. Mm. When I moved here, I was by myself. It's just that I was running away from something. And it's only this year, it's only, uh, yeah, it's only this year that it all made sense. That's confirmation for me that it's never too late to find yourself or to stop and just say, here I am. What do you mean it's never too late? I'm only 20. <laughs> Same here. <laughs> well, if there's no more questions, I just want to thank you so much again for this interview and uh, for this knowledge that I've learned about Martinique a little bit more about photography and congratulations on your projects and on you celebrating yourself and your professional life. And I'm sure that transfers to your personal life too. Thank you. Thank you very much. And congratulations to you too and your projects. And that's such a nice platform to be in. Really, thank you so much. Thank you for spending time with us. If you enjoyed this episode, please rate, comment, and subscribe. Share with your friends too. You can also follow us on Instagram at Our Black Gay Diaspora and on Twitter at BLK Gay Diaspora. Until next time.